Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green, and in this episode, we're going to be travelling to West Africa. And we're going to be exploring not only the rich contributions of African Muslims to the Arabic tradition of Islamic learning, but we're also especially going to be focusing upon the spread of Islamic teachings in African languages that were written down using the Arabic script. These languages were called the Ajami languages. And over a period of four or five centuries, a whole range of African languages, whether Fulani or Swahili, whether Berber or whether other languages, perhaps less familiar, such as Fulfulde, Fulani, Hausa, Wolofa, and Harari, as well as Somali in East Africa, were used to spread and indeed develop and enrich Muslim teachings for Muslims across the African continent from East to West. And we'll be looking especially at West Africa. And as our conversation develops, we'll be focusing upon the teachings of the great Senegalese Sufi master, Sheikh Ahmadou Bamba, who lived between 1850 and 1927, and whose followers, called the Murids, continue today to spread their teachings through their own Wolofal language in the Arabic script, through books, internet sites, and indeed songs that are performed in villages in cities, as well as now, of course, across the digital space of the internet. Leading me through this extremely rich and living tradition of African Ajami Islamic teachings is Professor Falu Ngom. Falu Ngom is a professor in the anthropology department at Boston University. A former Guggenheim fellow, he's the author of Muslims Beyond the Arab World, The Odyssey of Ajami and the Muridiyah, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2016. It also won the Melville J. Herskovitz Prize from the African Studies Association. Hello, fellow. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Hello, Niall. Thank you very much for the invitation. Oh, well, it's a real pleasure to have you here, because today we'll be talking about your specialty, We'll be talking about Islamic text written in the indigenous languages of Africa, but in the Arabic script, what we call the Ajami literatures. And we'll be focusing in particular on West Africa, which was one of the most productive regions for these Ajami texts written in local African languages. So to start us off, Falu, can you introduce us to the West African Muslim context in which these Ajami traditions evolved? Well, thank you very much, Niall. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, <clears throat> I think it's important uh, 
when we talk about Africa to uh, always acknowledge that Islam has been in Africa for a very, very, very long time. And this is really across Africa. Uh, we recall that the first Hijra, uh, when uh, Muslims uh, who were being persecuted in the early days of Islam sought refuge in Abyssinia. <laughs> and it was actually uh, a Christian king who helped uh, host those Muslim refugees. And that's uh, 1613. So Muslims refer to that as the first Hijra. Okay. And so, so that's, that's just to show you, you know, the, 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 you know, the long time that Islam has been in Africa. On other parts of Africa, particularly in West Africa, Islam has been also there for centuries. And uh, for, you know, different reasons, the trans-Saharan trade has been an important vehicle through which Islam has spread in the region, right? So movements of people, movements of goods, and among those goods, books, <laughs> so a part of those books, uh, those goods, and scholars, okay? So the Sahara Desert has never been a barrier. In fact, in the local traditions, the Sahara it has been construed as a sea, and the camels as the vessels, okay, that crisscrossed uh, between North and uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. So that's how really Islam spread is through these commercial uh, transactions between North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, one other movement that I think is worth mentioning is the significance of the Almoravid movement that spread from uh, 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 Mauritania and Northern Senegal up to Andalus. Okay. And that's actually the movement that spread, say, for example, the Maliki uh, School of Jurisprudence in West Africa. Okay. And so the way really Islam spread in Sub-Saharan Africa is a combination of several factors, trade, okay, the movement, the Almoravid movement's influence, but also the early conversion of leaders so it's really a top-down, if you look at it more closely, it's a top-down approach where the leaders were influenced by Islam, particularly the presence of Muslim traders and Muslim uh, scholars who actually helped run their bureaucracies. So many Muslims serve as scribes, uh, as uh, judges uh, to non-Muslim rulers. <laughs> okay. So Islam became something very prestigious. And as those leaders converted, later on the masses converted. And uh, maybe one important point there is also to note that, for example, uh, King Mansa Musa, who is well known as some argue that he was one of the wealthiest man who ever lived, uh, was a Muslim. And, 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 and his pilgrimage to Mecca is very celebrated because as he was traveling through Cairo, he, sp he spent so much gold that the price of gold fell. And of course, Europeans were first to acknowledge him and, and some Catalan cartographers have drawn him uh, holding uh, gold. So you can see uh, that Islam has been in Africa really, really for a long time. Uh, in our West African context, especially in Senegambia, uh, scholars have traced the presence of Islam uh, in uh, North, Northern Senegal and Mauritania since the 11th century. Okay. And it's often, often tied to King uh, Warjabi, okay, who converted into Islam 
uh, at that period, and later uh, his uh, uh, you know the masses converted. Right? And so 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 it's it's really uh, important to I think first understand that Islam is not uh, new in Africa. That Islam has been in Africa, and in some cases, it spread in some parts of Africa before it even spread in the Middle East, for example. Okay, in some parts of the Middle. East. So that's important, just as a context, you know. Well, that's really fascinating, fellow. That you, you know, you 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 set up for us this this big African picture from. East Africa and during the lifetime of, of the Prophet Muhammad then, as you said, the, the, the first Hijra, right over to West Africa, and given us this sense that, yeah, both Islam and Arabic, along with it, the yeah. language, of course, of the Quran, but the language, the, the main, the traditional language, at least, of, of Islamic religious and legal learning, that has this presence across West Africa as well as East Africa, as do these different Ajami languages, you know, have this presence across there too. But since we're going to be focusing on, on West Africa, I thought that was really fascinating that you brought into the conversation Spain, Al-Andalus via the Almoravids. And because when we're thinking about Arabic, but also about books uh, and the books that fascinate all of us as, as people who like to read, of course, it's in through Spain that paper spreads from yep. China through the Abbasid Caliphate and ultimately into Spain and that town of Khativa in Spain, where paper reaches Europe. But paper's also going south then, of course, isn't it? As you said, through the Trans-Saharan book trade. Right. So we really have these big world historical processes that are through those yeah. Muslim worldwide connections of Arabic book yeah. culture, this huge yeah. book culture of the medieval Arab, medieval Islamic uh, civilization that was much more, let's say, yeah. producing far more books, not least through earlier access to paper than right. Europe. And that's yeah. coming into Africa as well. Yeah. And then so we have that early Arabic tradition in Africa, Arabic mm -hmm. books, as you mentioned, and the spread through local bureaucrats with these practical yeah. as well as religious teachings. But yeah. let's build on then towards our real focus and your ex special expertise on these Ajami languages then. So that's to say, or Ajami literatures, I should say, local African languages written down using the, adopting the Arabic script. So how and when and by whom then were Islamic teachings first written down then in these West African Ajami scripts? Yeah. That's, a, that's a very fascinating question. And I, I would begin with um, one point you mentioned is the importance and significance of Arabic first among the Muslim intelligentsia of Africa. As uh, Hanwick has uh, noted, Arabic has served as a Latin of Africa for over 900 years. <laughs> okay. And so Africans, whether you are Hausa, uh, Kanuri, uh, Wolof, people have communicated in Arabic and that's how they connected to the global Islamic traditions you know, of Muslims in other parts of the world. Okay. But this Arabic is, is a language of the intelligentsia. Okay, but the local people speak their own languages. <laughs> so if you were Wolof, you might be uh, uh, speaking Wolof to your people, but if you communicate with your colleagues outside of the Wolof context, you are gonna use Arabic, right? So what happened there for these scholars, um, uh, and I think this is important to emphasize, these are multilingual scholars, 
So African scholars in general are not monolingual. And I think I want to stress that. Mm. They're not monolingual because they live in communities where people don't, do not speak Arabic. Right? They speak Hausa, they speak Fula, right? But they're also highly educated in Arabic. So they deploy both uh, languages depending on the audience they communicate with. Right? And that's really where we have to, you know, understand how Ajami emerged, right? So, and, and that's a really a parallel, isn't it, between Africa and Europe, isn't it? That we have, as you mentioned, Latin with, you know, you, you, yes. you mentioned John Hunwick, the American scholar of, of, of Arabic and Africa. And, yeah. and in a sense, it's rather like in Europe, we take for granted now that we write European languages that's in right. the Latin script, isn't it? You know, right. it's yeah. the same process that we've yep. seen in Africa. Yeah, and that's exactly the case. And so uh, I give me, uh, was simply, uh, you know, a, an approach, a technique to enrich the Arabic script so that it could render uh, the vowels and consonants that exist in Hausa, in, in Spanish, in uh, Uyghurs, among the Chinese uh, Uyghurs, uh, all these languages, uh, so that they can write them and convey Islamic teachings. Right. So the original birth of, 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 of Ajami is really to convey Islamic thought, Islamic teachings. Right? Uh, in Africa, the early documents of Ajami writing in African societies is not well documented. Uh, particularly, that's you know one of the reasons is because of preservation conditions of uh, these documents. But it is believed that old Tashilhit or medieval medieval uh, medieval Berber, uh, Songhai and Kanuri, I believe to be the first West African languages to have been written in Ajami. And this is between the 10th and the 16th century. And then these are followed later by Fulde, uh, Hausa, Wolof, Yoruba. Uh, it, there is a discovery in Niger of a 500 folio manuscripts in 2000, dating from uh, the 16th century. This is, I think, one of the most important discoveries in uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the past two decades. So the manuscripts deal, dealt with uh, pharmacopoeia and other topics, and they call into question the assumption in academia that Ajami was only used for proselytizing purposes. Right? So just like Latin, it emerged from a religious context, but people's life transcend the religious context. Right? People have all the preoccupations, and so therefore Ajami evolved to uh, become a means to record, uh, you know, record people's transactions, uh, births, you know, uh, death, you know, important elements in their lives. Okay, so that's really how uh, Ajami became a, a primary means of written communication for many scholars to communicate with their masses. And, and, and I think it's important to highlight that complementarity between Arabic. Right? and Ajami traditions of Africa, okay? Well, that's so really intriguing. You've been mentioning these, these manuscript finds of really 500-year-old uh, uh, manuscripts from, from Niger that have just been found in the last decade. And, and I should mention for listeners that you've just spent the summer making another trip back to, to Senegal and Gambia and collecting oral as well as textual traditions of Ajami because this is the, let's say, the discovery outside of Africa, let's say, you know, kind of the, the increasing awareness outside of Africa of these Ajami traditions is relatively recent. The rest of the world has been in pretty much a state of, of ignorance about the existence of this now 
500-year-old or even older intellectual, literary, religious, and indeed, as you said, yeah. the sort of broader sort of traditions of learning. Um, and it's really kind of massively shifting, I think, our understanding of African history, of African cultures, and, and I would say of, of world history as well, as well as Islamic sort of yeah. history, the focus of this podcast. Uh, it's such an exciting time, I think, for Ajami and African and world historical studies through the discoveries of, of scholars like you really going and finding stuff that we just did not know existed or, the, or outside of these local regions, the rest of us didn't know existed. You mentioned then, you know, the, the, this sort of interlinked, this bilingualism and this sort of interlinked yeah. process between the Arabic script and indeed Arabic, Islamic, broader intellectual and religious traditions, because, and it's important for listeners to bear in mind then that, as you've mentioned then already, that Africa was also really an important participant in and contributor yeah. to the Definitely. Arabic textual tradition, yeah. the connected yeah. African Muslims to learned, as yeah. you said, this Muslim intelligentsia around the Mediterranean, the Indian yeah. Ocean, Asia at large, and of course back to yeah. the, the Hijaz and Mansa yep. Musa, and indeed, you know, the, the origins of, of Islam in the Prophet's own time. So what, given that we've got this sort of African contribution to Arabic yep. learning, what was so significant then about the develop of this, development of these textual corpus of, of writings in, in Arabic in scripts, uh, in African languages? Great. What was so significant then about this Ajami religious yeah. tradition? That's, that's great. I think the, 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 the most important, I think, uh, uh, factor for the spread of Islam is the use of African languages. <laughs> so uh, uh, the scholars realize that to convey uh, the ethos of Islam to the masses who don't speak Arabic, the best way and most effective way to do it is to do it in their own languages. <laughs> yeah. And that I think is one of the most important contribution of Ajimi in the spread of Islam in Africa. Right? And so if you just look at the corpus of the text we have, and again, this is very important because we tend to think that, uh, we tend to emphasize at least until recently, the, the Arabic corpus, right? But we need to understand that many of these scholars have published or produced uh, uh, documents of equal importance in Arabic and Ajami. So it's really two, you know, complementary uh, 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 traditions of, 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 of reading and writing that we're talking about. Here. So I just don't want to box it into Ajami alone or Arabic alone. It's really, you know, uh, a multilingual corpus. So if I look at the, the, the corpus that we have, just at Boston University, which is really a drop in the, in the whole ocean of Ajami text. So we have texts in Arabic and Ajami dealing with uh, astro astrology, divination, talismanic protective devices, Sufism, theology, panegyrics of Prophet Muhammad, exegesis of the Quran, didactic material in prose and poetry, elegies, grammar, philology, jurisprudence, calendars, history, biographies, genealogies, commercial records, diplomatic correspondences, pastoral poems on nature and rural life, texts dealing with French colonization and British colonization, 
And clearly, you can see, and this is just, you know, a drop. <laughs> and, and, and these texts, again, are both in Arabic and Ajumic. <laughs> okay. And so, so, so therefore, uh, for uh, these scholars who wrote, say, Musaka or others, some of them has actually opted to write only in Ajumi, as they thought, for example, their mission within the Muridiya, for example, in the case of uh, Musaka, was to translate Bamba's ideas into local languages using local metaphors so that it could resonate with the local masses. Right? Others have taken different approach. Others have decided that the same scholar will be writing in two languages. And in some cases, the scholars would decide, in fact, that I will focus all my life in Ajimi. And these are, these are ideological uh, differences that we will talk about later. Uh, and I, I, I might note here, for many of these scholars who really defended Ajimi, they took important ideological positions that were not popular. Uh, because in uh, many contexts, some have assumed or have argued that the language for is of Islam is Arabic. And to be taken seriously when you deal with Islamic thought, you have to write in Arabic. And of course, that is what some of us have called the monoglossic ideology of language. Like those who think that God is monolingual speaks either <coughs> Arabic or Latin or whatever language. But many of these Ajami scholars took the position of what I call the polyglossic ideology of language. That for them, God is multilingual. And one can be a good Wolof, a good Hausa, a good Turk, a good Persian, be proud of you know, one's heritage, linguistic heritage, but also be a good Muslim. They don't see these things as mutually exclusive, but, but, but complementary. Right? And that's how we have to, the context that really uh, is a context of Ajami scholars that we have in Africa. Right? And um, because of their contribution, they were able to translate the Islamic thoughts and adapt it in their local tradition. And here Sufism, Sufi leaders have played a very critical role. Right? And it's really the Sufi leaders who were able, through their poems and writing, to be able to uh, convey you know, the tenets of Islam to the masses and who understood the message. And in many of these cases, it is through these texts that were also chanted right, or recited in rural areas. And you, you can see also here the complementarity between written and oral. Right? In the same way, uh, Arabic and Ajemi are complementary. The written and oral are also complementary because Ajami texts are designed to be chanted, but they're also written. <laughs> okay, so they're, they're, they're complementary. And I think this is probably one of the most significant ways uh, through which Islam has spread uh, in, in most of West Africa. Okay. You, the, the, yeah, there's two points there I'd like to sort of highlight, uh, actually, Fallow, and, and one. I mean, two more general points, really, I think, you know, that again, sort of illustrate that what we're looking at here are, are, are significant world historical developments that have echoes elsewhere. And one, as you, as you mentioned, the importance of, of recognizing the bilingualism of, right. of so many of the, 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 at least of the scholarly kind of, you know, writers of, uh, of these texts in Ajami. It makes me think of, let's say, within English literature, with a figure like John Milton, who writes yeah. in Latin as well as in English, 
That's but mostly right. he's recognised as just being yeah. an English language poet. That's correct. Yeah. And scholars have just looked at that, forgetting yeah. that he's actually still part of a broader, right. yeah. you know, kind of intellectual, literary, linguistic world of, of Latin yeah. that's still there in the 17th century. And yeah. the other point that you know you mentioned is when you know, kind of you're you're, you're reaching out to you know, as you're saying, kind of. There's a similar processes with with let's say. Persians, do, do, did Iranians or Turks need to only access Islamic teachings through Arabic? And that's particularly fascinating because, as you know better than I do, when the, the word Ajami is a, was that's originally right. used by Arabs as this contrast right. between the Arab and Ajam right. yep. in early Islamic history, and the Arab was themselves and the Ajam were the Persians. That's but right. over yep. the centuries then, in, in the early centuries, the Umayyad yep. and Abbasid caliphates, they say the early medieval period, just to explain to readers, to listeners, yeah. that Ajam and Ajami yeah. was used for, for Byzantine Greeks, for Armenians, for Georgians, even for yeah. Jewish peoples, as well as for Berbers, yeah. Ethiopians yeah. in East Africa, yeah. and then in West Africa as well, because it's basically the non-Arab or the non-Arabic, right. isn't it? And uh, yeah. so, yeah. again, it's this, this you know, kind of yeah. uh, link to... Yeah, I think that's a good point. Place. I think that's a very good point. And I think that uh, I'm glad you touched on the... Uh, evolution of the word Ajam uh, uh, from its origins where actually it carried the same derogatory connotation as the word barbarian yeah, that uh, was used uh, by uh, uh, the Greeks and Latins to uh, uh, classify people who were regarded as inferior. <laughs> okay. So, but, but in, in, in the case of Ajami, in fact, uh, as you said, Clearly, the closest neighbors to the Arabs were Persians, so they had to be the first one to receive that <coughs> that name, that name, right? But ultimately, it referred to people who were regarded as non-Arab and therefore whose cultures were inferior. Right? So that created uh, necessary resistance right? within the Muslim community for scholars emphasize diversity within Islam. And I think that's what led, in fact, to the writing of uh, uh, Persian, uh, Turkish, and we find the same themes in Ajami tradition of Africa that emphasize that, that, that ethno-linguistic diversity is a form of divine mercy. In fact, I have a poem in, in, in Wall of Tradition by Musa Atta that argues that Ethnolinguistic diversity is divine, is a form of divine mercy. It's a way that God has created us so that we can enrich one another. Right? And, that, and, that, and that position is very, very important. You hear it, you know, I, I was just translating a poem uh, recently uh, from another uh, Ajami scholar from Futa Jalon, Cherno Mombeya, and it's the same point again. Right? Even, even in Africa, so you had people who thought that to write in Arabic is the, uh, the appropriate way to write about Islam. Right? And they challenged their colleagues who decided to write in Ajami. But the response is always the same, is that first, we're writing in Ajami so we can convey the teachings of Islam. Right? But we should also know that we're not Arab, we're Fula, we're Mandinka, we're Hausa. We can be a proud African, Fula or Hausa or Yoruba, and be a good Muslim. These are not mutually exclusive. And I think, I think therefore, the word Ajami has been really appropriated now, okay? And people, it does not carry anymore its initial negative connotation. 
because now people see Ajimi and are very proud, you know, to be both Hausa and good Muslim, or both Wolof and a good Muslim, or both Persian or Turk and a good Muslim. Okay, I think this is this is just is showing us parallels, and I'm glad you brought that between the um, spread and evolution of Christianity itself, <laughs> right, and Islam in this case, right, and and the way this tradition have been localized. Okay, and it is in the localization process that we see the significance of Ajumi actually in, 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 in helping localize Islam right? and making the ethos and the teachings of Islam resonate to the local farmer, you know, the local shopkeeper, you know, the local uh, herder. You know? And that's really, I think, the work of, uh, in, in West Africa, it has been the work of uh, the Sufi, Sufi leaders, Sufi traditions, because they produce poems in both Arabic and Ajimi. And then through those poems, uh, people would hear and understand. And I, uh, and I will end there on this point. Uh, one of the fascinating things that I find when I look at these Ajami poems in West Africa is the significance of local metaphors. I call them primarily the metaphors of fauna and flora. Metaphors dealing with animals and dealing with plants that are so important as pedagogical tools. So you'll find proverbs and maxims that draw on these metaphors that local people know. And it is through these metaphors that they channel Islamic ethics and Islamic thoughts. And I think that has made, say, for example, Islam resonate with local people because they can understand the teachings of Islam through these metaphors that they know, uh, that teach about ethics, that teach about morality, that teach about being a good person, you know, using, using uh, mnemonic devices and, 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 and sayings that are local. Okay. And I think that's really a major contribution that the Sufi uh, leaders have done uh, uh, as a way to spread Islam in, you know, uh, in, in, in West Africa. Absolutely. We'll, we'll turn more to the Sufis in, in, in a few moments. But before we do, I just want to dwell a little bit on what you brought up of this, in a sense, this beautiful irony that the term uh, yeah. Ajami was originally pejorative. That's but right. It gets appropriated as you said yeah. to show no we, we we know arabic very well thank you very much and we also can that's write right, that's other right. languages yeah. that in a sense you can't i mean it's it makes me think of if if, if i recall the, the classical arabic correctly that that arab araba meant in a sense to speak clearly to speak arabic clearly and, and this the, yeah. the verb ajama meant to mumble so that's right these yeah. were pejorative terms but they're yeah. in a sense linguistic or or or, or sort of educational yeah. pejoratives that's correct then, yeah you know yeah. through africans yeah. as well as early sort of persians and others learning arabic very well not least as yeah. kind of bureaucrats in their own yeah. states or religious scholars and of course we've had many major african religious scholars who have been teaching in mecca medina let's course, say yeah, yeah. Uh, teaching arabic and through arabic yeah. but then there's this added extra then that as you said the word gets appropriated and yeah. used for these other uh, literary traditions as well of, of, of other languages, whether in, indeed personal in our context, African yeah. languages that West African languages we're talking about, yeah. but of course, so the East African Ajami, yeah. the most famous of all being yeah. Swahili. <laughs> Dwelling on again, the, the, the Sufi contribution Perhaps before we, we move on to looking at um, the um, Senegalese Sufis of the 19th and 20th century, perhaps you can tell us a little bit, uh, Falu, about uh, 
about some of the earlier Sufi institutions <clears throat> in, in, in West Africa yeah. that, you know, emerged yeah. through yeah. perhaps the, the 18th and 19th yeah. century. Yeah. The, the oldest Sufi tradition in West Africa is the Qadriya, the Qadriya Sufi tradition, and uh, followed by the Tijaniya, uh, uh, whose uh, founder is uh, buried in Fez, Morocco. Okay, and then the youngest ones are clearly the uh, uh, the murid, uh, although uh, very popular, is the youngest one that uh, resulted in you know the nineteenth uh, twentieth century. But uh, many Qadriya uh, uh, Sufi leaders uh, have migrated from uh, Spain to Timbuktu, and then Timbuktu to uh, North Africa and. Uh, uh, Mauritania, right? So in our Senegambian region, uh, the oldest Sufi tradition there is Qadriya. In fact, many of the Murids, uh, 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 the, the early Murids belong to the Qadriya tradition before they shifted affiliation. Okay. So, but what I think is central to understand all of these um, uh, uh, development, the development of the Sufi tradition in the region is to come back to the issue of Ajimi and how it has been appropriated. That had led me to uh, a framework that I call the Ajamization of Islam. Right? Uh, because uh, in the same way, the Arabic script was enriched with intangible ways so that you can write a P, which doesn't exist in Arabic. Uh, Arabic has Ba, so you use a, in Wolof, for example, to write a P, you use a Ba and you add three dots on top or below. Uh, to write a book. These are tangible. It's in the same way that uh, uh, there are also subtle enrichments of Islam in these communities. Local ethical traditions, let's take, for example, in the world of context, the idea of uh, perseverance, endurance. Right? This has a direct equivalent in Islam. In Sufi tradition, it's sabr. Right? So what happened, what the Sufi leaders did was actually to blend these two. And, and in so doing, to give it a religious stamp so that the traditional virtue of sabr, which was there before Islam came, got elevated into religious obligation. Right? So I call this, I call this subtle dimension of Ajamization of Islam. Right? In other areas, what might happen, you might find another virtue that receives an Islamic stamp, like work ethic among the murids. Of course, they are farmers, peanut farmers, you got to work to be able to survive. So Bamba elevated work ethic as a religious obligation. Right? And I think by using this framework of identification of Islam, we, we can see how these different Sufi leaders, based on their priorities, based on what they thought to be important uh, uh, virtues that Islam could uh, bring to these societies, is to elevate some of the existing similar virtues <laughs> into religious obligation. And that's where Ajami becomes also very critical because Ajami is the, 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 most, the most effective vehicle, right? Of, of conveying these uh, localization, these re reinterpretations of Islamic value in uh, this context. And so uh, to, from there to touch on the Murids, and I think that's really one of the successes of the Muridiyah is that uh, Shah Ahmed Bamba, the founder of the Muridiya, who was, uh, was born in um, 1853 and died in 1927, 
in a context of colonization, French colonization, very uh, difficult uh, era, uh, was subjected to two deportations, uh, one in Gabon and one in Mauritania. Uh, basically, he was deprived of liberty for about 32 years. But the only thing, the only way, you know, his movement survived is through his writings. <laughs> right? So what's interesting in the case of Ahmed Bamba is that he opted to write only in Arabic, <laughs> right? To communicate with his, with his peers, right? But also to celebrate Prophet Muhammad. But he urged his senior colleagues <laughs> who were Arabophones to translate his thoughts to the masses in, in Ajami. Right. <laughs> okay. And so, so and, and I think this was a communication strategy that Bamba used that really paid off, right? And so he deployed two, you know, uh, communication strategies. And in this case, clearly Ajami was used as a mass education and communication strategy. Right? And I think that's the reason why the movement succeeded despite his 32 years of, uh, 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 of, of deprivation of uh, freedom, that he was not able to be free, right? And so you could see uh, in the Murit, Murit tradition, uh, you have Musa Akam, Bajahate, Sambajarambai. All of these were scholars recognized locally as great poets Arab in Arabic. But when they came to Bamba and they accepted Bamba's spiritual leadership, Bamba told them, well, we got a mission. And your mission is to translate, my, in the same way I am conducting myself vis-a-vis -vis the prophet as his servant and trying to uh, communicate with my colleagues right, in Arabic language, I want you to do to play the same role between me and my people. Right? And, in so, and many of them actually decided from that point they're no longer going to produce a single poem in Arabic. <laughs> they took it as a, as a, as a Sufi khidma. Uh, as a service uh, to their Sufi leader. And they began to write in Ajimi beautiful poems that has now uh, uh, flourished uh, with a new generation of poets uh, who are following them. And I think, I think it is through these poems that are chanted in rural villages, it is uh, through them that the, the, the teachings of Sheikh Ahmed Bamba, uh, particularly the ethic-centered teaching that he adopted, Right, uh, as opposed to a more formal and uh, theoretical uh, teachings of Islam. Uh, Bamba was very practical. He wanted people to actually experience uh, Islam as, 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 as they live in their societies, to be ethical human beings, right? The best way to do that was to convey those teachings in a language that these people could understand. And that's what his, his followers did. You know, and I think that's um, really how Sufism spread in our, our region. But in a particular case of the Murids, I think the success of the Murid has really been the deployment of Ajimi as a mass communication uh, a strategy and an education strategy uh, to bring the teachings of Sufism to the masses. I think that's really why the movement didn't fail despite, you know, the exiles and the house arrest, uh, you know, that Bamba was subjected in uh, to for 32 years. That's really so important, Fala, what you've been explaining to us there. I mean, in particular, I, I was taking two themes away here from what you've been saying. And uh, before we come on to the life of Sheikh Hamadou Bamba in more detail and his teachings, um, one of the things I was taking away 
from what you've been saying is that what we're seeing here isn't, let's say, a picture of just, just Africa and African Muslims just receiving Islamic teachings and, yeah. and just saying, OK, we'll, we'll translate this into some local languages. There's really a, a sense here of actually new contributions and enrichments yeah. of the tradition through, as you said, local metaphors and indeed sort of engagements of, of, of Muslims from these different environments, different West African environments here, enriching and thinking through and contributing and taking the tradition much further. And the other thing that in some ways related to that is there's two ways we can think about what's going on here. And I think we're both moving in and out of them as we do as kind of scholars who have our you know, involvements in this tradition in different ways ourselves as well, perhaps. And the one is, let's say, our, our scholarly language. We talk, yeah. There's a work ethic here and this, these are linguistic processes or me talking about this is a world historical development. Yeah. But of course, as you've been showing us, that, of course, within these Ajami texts themselves and the teachings of the various Sufi or other African Muslim figures, of course, th these de developments are actually thought through in terms of Islamic ethical and spiritual terms. You mentioned khidma, the idea of the Arabic and classical Sufi idea of service or sabr, right. mm -hmm. patience, these great mm -hmm. virtues that have a social uh, good in a sense but also you know help us spiritually develop and and you've mentioned and perhaps you can talk more about that in a moment about the the ways in which murid teachers and sheikh Abdul Bamba develop those older ideas more fully mm -hmm. and the other thing you mentioned was was the the engagement with 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 the, this idea that we might be talking in a sense as academics as paid yeah. university teachers about uh about you know these linguistic developments and so on and but there's also of course that within the islamic tradition as you mentioned really i think very beautifully that that sense of of the ling linguistic diversity of humankind being Rahm, Rahm, a sign of divine mercy right. and that really made me think of that famous uh uh verse from the quran in surah al-hujurat the 49th mm -hmm. surah god allah speaking we have made you nations and tribes that you might know one another that's you know, right. in yeah. this difference among humankind yeah. there's something that you can learn from that that's good for yeah. you that's another yeah. in a sense, another mercy so as we turn then to your really specialist subject then of sheikh ahmed ubamba the great senegalese sufi master imprisoned by the french for decades but but uh during his lifetime as you mentioned uh uh, him dying in 1927, he wrote uh, wrote extensively in Arabic, but also him and his followers taught orally and then writing down in in Ajami. And those followers are called the the murids, then the the, the disciples in a sense, uh, from an old Arabic term. And and this is a of course the murids have spread out of Senegal throughout West yeah. Africa, other regions of Africa, and now in in in, in much of Europe and, and the United States and elsewhere too. So can you tell us more about the, the murids then, yeah. that Sheikh Hamid Ubamba founded, and their Ajami teachings? And perhaps give us an insight then yeah. into internal a, spiritual yeah. doctrines. That's, that's, that's a great uh, uh, question. And I will, I will begin with uh, the verse uh, that you just mentioned. In Ajami, one of the Ajami scholars uh, has uh, uh, summarized and taught the same uh, virtue in the following words. 
So when I, uh, when we met him one time, he told us Aduna Wahaja. And uh, Wahaja is an abbreviation of three words, Wahante, uh, Hamante, and Jerinyante. He said the world can be summarized in three things from our teachings, from the teaching of Shah Mudabamba. It is about Wahante to speak to each other. It is about Hamante to know each other. It is about Jerinyante to be useful to each other. And then he said, uh, God could have created us as rain or trees, but it is because he intended us to enrich one another that he cre created us in different groups and different types and different heights and different sizes. Right? So you can see how that Islamic teaching that you just traversed has been localized in a way that it could resonate with people. Right? And this, is, this, this has been the center of Ahmed Obama's teaching. It's really focused on what they call, again, agemization in Wolof, Jikoyrafet. These are in literally translated as beautiful virtues. But this is what Muslim Sufi, Sufi Muslim would call Makarim al-Akhlaq. This is the same. So it's actually Makarim al-Akhlaq, right? That is translated as Jikoyrafet, which is what? Which is to be a good person. Right? to be somebody who is just, right? somebody who is dependable, to somebody who embodies the ethical virtues that Islam teaches. Right? And, in, in he, and he created schools that trained his disciples in these areas. And what is very interesting about Sheikh Amurubamba was that he had uh, a teaching uh, styles and, and, and curriculum that were, that were tailored to the need of the masses who came to him. He understood that not everyone had the same problem. And his focus was to clear what, what Sufi called uh, the flows of the heart, right? the sicknesses of the heart. Some might be too talkative like Falu. Mm -hmm. And for those, he would interview them and he would assign them work where no one is to talk to. <laughs> until they're able to control their, their talkativeness. For those who suffered from, the, from uh, the, the sickness of the heart called arrogance, mm. who used to be descendant of rulers, he would send them to those places where they could have ruled to beg, to become fakir, to become disciples, until they reached a point where wealth and lack of wealth mean the same to them. Right? For those who were lazy, he would put them in groups. So they would work in groups and they could not avoid working. Okay? So he created a system that took into account the different needs, okay? And he created pedagogies that allowed people to grow. And the goal was what was, again, the, the same focus of most Sufi traditions to, to heal the heart, right? To clear the heart from the nafs, uh, the soul, uh, from uh, greed, from the sicknesses of hatred, right? And, 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 and jealousy, right? And so for, for him, that was the goal of Islam. <laughs> the primary goal of Islam is therefore to take human beings 
who are suffering from the sicknesses of the heart and to help them get rid of them so that they can live the fullest in San Al-Kamil, the full human being, the way they were intended by God uh, to be, so that they could flourish. Right? And the way to do that was actually to, to, to train them through tarbiyah, spiritual trainings. And he had schools of tarbiyah. And the tarbiyah training was uh, really the way I conceptualize it is somewhat like a boot camp. <laughs> and he, he taught some of them mastery of hunger, for example. And I, I have a, and he did this to both men and women. I, I found out there's an Ajami text uh, that's written about one of uh, his daughters who mentioned that there used to be food when they were building Tuba in the 1880s, 1888, 1889. But the, his the, dad would only give the, the Murid holy city of Tuba in Senegal. Yes, yeah. And his, but his dad would only give to everyone a handful of millet to eat. Well, but when there were a lot of food in the granaries. And that was so that they could endure hunger. Okay. And so, so he provided these teachings to both men and women. Okay. And I think this was very important uh, uh, element that explains why later when those generations of Murid came out, the French colonial administration could not handle them because these were people who were well-trained and who uh, believed in their self-sufficiency, who believed in work ethic, and who had been ingested with these jikoyurafet makarim al-akhlaq that Bamba has cultivated in them. And I think that's really uh, uh, the center of the, uh, the core of the success of the Muridiyya, right? And so what's interesting is that uh, clearly it shows that these African Sufi leaders, so Bamba has done that. Uh, other Sufi leaders of the Tijaniya, the Khadriya, the Layan, and the Shadiliya have done similar you know, innovations and similar adaptations of Islam in their own spaces. Right? So clearly here, these scholars are not only receiving Islam, right? but they're contributing in significant ways right? in Islamic thought. And Islamic culture, and it's in, in, in its uh, blending and adaptation, right, in their communities. And I think that has to be recognized as um, one of the uh, important contributions of these Sufi leaders. And I might touch there one, you know, thread, uh, one uh, uh, thread of thought that runs through the history of the region. Mm, and then I think it's important is that non-violent Sufi traditions, for example, that go back to uh, 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 the Suarian tradition, right? That uh, people like uh, David Robinson have called the Suarian tradition, that have always emphasized the ethical dimensions of Islam, right? That most of these Sufi have have taught uh, in the Suarian Suarian tradition, the Jahankis tradition. It was very clear that the job of the Muslim was not to convert people by force, but to convert them with that ethical conduct. What best way is it to convert the non-Muslim than to be a good person in business, uh, to be a model of reference? <laughs> okay. And I think that's how many of these Sufi traditions like Bamba and others have been able uh, to uh, convey the teachings of Islam as elevating ethics more than just rituals. Rituals becomes just actually a pathway to elevate ethics. You know? And to wrap up on that, uh, 
the, the Ajami tradition have been really central in helping uh, these teaching reach to masses. And there's a new generation of uh, Murid scholars who continue to uh, follow these traditions and um, to expand also grassroots literacy in both Arabic and Ajami uh, that you can find in the diaspora and in Africa and uh, who have actually moved <laughs> to digital spaces. <laughs> okay. so, so I think the digital space area is an important area where we can see continuations right, of the teachings of these Sufi leaders such as Ahmed Bamba. And the Muris have engaged technology very early on. In fact, uh, since the 1950s, they began to buy printing presses like the Gutenberg printing uh, press was bought in the Murid communities and Murid businesses have flourished right? uh, and they focus in the production and the marketing the distribution of Arabic and Ajami texts of their movement right? and the production of recitations. Right? Uh, it's important to always note in whenever there is an oral uh, 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 written text in the Murid tradition, there is often an oral rendition of the text. So in the old days, it was cassettes, right? And then MP, uh, MP3 uh, uh, audio files, and then DVDs. Now they're YouTube, <laughs> okay? where you can actually watch uh, uh, a clip, listen to the chanting and see the text. And I call that uh, uh, music-derived pedagogies, music-derived, that is generating music-derived literacies. And I think it's an area that I hope uh, the new generation of scholars would explore to see how these traditions of Shah Mudubamba and other Sufi scholars have migrated uh, to the digital space and what is the impact in uh, the diaspora, uh, you know, uh, among uh, African Muslims. Well, that's really just so altogether beautifully expressed, Fali. You've really given, the, in the little bit of time that we have in this podcast, you've really given us a sense of the extraordinary oh, the spiritual depth of Ahmed Bamba's teachings but also an important way the practicality that yeah. Sufis weren't monks they, they 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 married and they expected their disciples as well as themselves to have working lives these were very practical teachings as well as teachings of the you know the, the greatest spiritual and existential depth and and you've also given us a sense I think very, very nicely in bringing us up through these different, you know, several generations of technological change, that this is a living tradition yep. that adapts and makes use of newer technologies, new ways of communicating, new ways of spreading that ethical message, those ethical models and spiritual models of Sheikh Ahmed Obama, that as you mentioned, that, that he, he, Ahmed Obama was, as, you, as you've written about, one of his great teachings was emphasizing the importance of jihad or nafs, the, the greater right. yeah. jihad in Islamic tradition, yeah. which is against the self, which is against yeah. the lower qualities of one's, yeah. uh, you know, cl clearing the, the one's own heart rather than going yeah. outwards and forcibly converting or fighting with others. So this tradition that we've talked about is continually being explored and kept alive and taken to new places, digital or otherwise, in the, uh, in the African diaspora in Europe as well as in West Africa itself. So let me ask you the final question then. What role do Ajami texts, or indeed Ajami music, play in the lives of West African Muslims today or, or 
indeed across the yeah. diaspora. Yeah, no, I, I think I think I, I have to be uh, I have to say that I have always been impressed when I go to the field of uh, how uh, savvy uh, these new generations of uh, uh, Murids and all the uh, uh, members of Sufi traditions. They are actually uh, connected to the internet and their activities struggle uh, between their communities and digital space. Yeah. And I think it's very important to understand that in fact, what, what I see is that the traditions and the chanting, the devotional and didactic uh, work that used to take place in rural areas in the time of Sheikh Ahmed Obama. Right? The same thing is now happening in digital spaces. <laughs> right? so, so for example, in the 1880s, when some Muris were being arrested for disturbing the peace by the French colonial administration, because they were chanting in these rural villages some poems of Sheikh Ahmed Bamba. Right? Now, the same chanting is happening, but it's happening in digital space. <laughs> in digital space. Okay. And, and the result is, I think, the expansion of, 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 of the Sufi tradition and the Sufi teachings. Right? And, and also the expansion of literacy. And I think that's, excuse me, that's very important because we traditionally think of the acquisition of literacy and the acquisition of uh, Islamic uh, ethos as part of something we acquire from the Quranic school or the Majalis, you know, these, these, these institutions. But what, we, what is happening is now actually we're having all of these things accessible online. Right? And more materials are being produced. I mean, if you just go online and just search Hasida Ahmed Bamba, you would see clips that have been listened to by 500,000 people, 300,000 people, because these are uh, uh, important for the Muris in the diaspora. And I, I suspect the same thing may be going on for the Tijaniya, the Khadriya, and other Sufi tradition. So I think this is a very important area where I invite young, uh, you know, the new generation of scholars who are uh, more tech savvy than I am to, uh, <laughs> to engage uh, these sources, because I think these are very important new sources of understanding Islam in Africa. Well, on that encouraging and absolutely very inspiring note on so many different levels, which uh, I think a good point to, to end. Uh, and yeah, inspire us all to read and learn. And for those of us who are capable, not much research <laughs> these rich Ajami traditions. Professor Fallow and Gong, thank you so much for speaking to us in Akbar's chamber. You're most welcome. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Dad, 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 dad,